0: As host of The Amazing Race for 250 episodes now, Phil Kogan has seen for himself just how much technology is changing how we travel.
1: If you think about how things have changed in the last decade, it's crazy. I mean, people can send a message from anywhere in the world now to say that they just saw an Amazing Race crew running through the airport in Hong Kong.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we go behind the camera with the host of TV's Amazing Race. And the holidays are here which ones are you celebrating?
2: We celebrated Easter. We celebrated Hanukkah. We celebrated Purim. We celebrated Christmas. I think anything when you could eat and there were gifts.
0: Jane and Michael Stern join us to find comfort foods for the holidays around the USA.
3: Huckleberry pie in Idaho, sour cream raisin pie in northern Minnesota. I mean, pies that many people might not even know about. And listeners share their favorite places
0: for Christmas time vacations. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. International travel is the backdrop for one of America's most popular reality TV shows. We'll get a peek behind the scenes of The Amazing Race in just a bit with the show's host, Phil Cogan as they finish off their latest season. We'll also check in with listeners who share their favorite vacation places for Christmas away from home at 877-333-7425. Let's warm up for the holidays today on Travel with Rick Steves with a little culinary encouragement from Jane and Michael Stern. Whatever holidays you're celebrating, eating well is a highlight of the season. If you have to drive out of town to visit family or friends, you used to have to depend on luck or a little word of mouth to find a really decent place to eat on the road. But since Jane and Michael have dedicated thousands of miles and calories to seeking out the very best places to enjoy authentic regional specialties cheap and tasty road food can now be a destination in itself. Jane and Michael, thanks for joining us.
3: Great to be here, Rick. Hi, Rick.
0: Hi. Now it's uh, it's holiday season. Uh, it's Hanukkah, it's Christmas is coming up. Some people are going for long drives to relatives and getting a, a little winter break. You know, you guys. I, I kind of think of road food as as not necessarily winter, but of course, now that I think about it, there's plenty of dimensions for enjoying road food even in the dead of winter, even around Christmas time and Hanukkah.
2: Well, you know, a lot of people don't like to cook, and so that brings up, well, what do I do with my family if I have thirty relatives and I don't feel like, you know, spending four days in the kitchen? More and more people are going to restaurants for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, and that's always been one of our favorite things to do. So we've always kept a short list of our favorite holiday places.
0: Tell us some good places for a big family get-together in the holidays.
3: Well, there's one place. If anybody happens to be traveling near uh, Edison, New Jersey, there is one restaurant called Harold's New York Deli, and it's in New Jersey despite the name. And it is the ultimate, and I really mean the ultimate, New York deli. When I say that, I'm talking about not only is the food terrific. I mean, this is some of the best pastrami, potato pancakes. I mean, classic Jewish deli food, plus other things, but matzo balls. Not only is it really good, I mean, first-rate cooking, like your grandmother should have made if she was a good cook. It is gigantic. It's like comically, cartoonishly huge. For example, if you get a large pastrami sandwich at Harold's New York Deli, it is literally, I mean this literally, I'm not talking figuratively, it is literally 18 to 24 inches tall. A party of four can get one pastrami sandwich, split it four ways, and each of the four take home leftovers to have pastrami hash the next morning.
0: And they're happy with people doing that?
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Nobody, nobody leaves Harold's Deli without uh, leftovers.
2: Yeah. Which really brings up the point of the one thing that is a problem about restaurant eating during the holidays is, well, of course, where are the leftovers? But at a place Uh like Harold's, you will have, believe me, you will have leftovers. The thing that tickles me about Harold's is Hanukkah always gets kind of like, I don't know, it's like the the third cousin of, <laughs> of Christmas. Right. You know, being Jewish, I always, you know, like, I would say, well, where are all the houses, you know, with the great Hanukkah lights that we could drive <laughs> by at night and look at, you know, and, you know, you you just don't see that abulence that you do with Christmas. And Harold's, just by the kind of hugeness of the place, the overkill of the food— the, the kind of rambunctious. <laughs> it's Hanukkah's revenge. It is Hanukkah's <laughs> revenge. It's, you know, there's nothing modest or second rate about Harold's yeah. for the holidays.
3: And by the way, Harold's is open on Christmas Day if you're looking for a place to go on Christmas Day. To me, a great celebratory food, it's something called gribbiness. I'm not even sure how to spell it, but it's what you get when you render chicken fat, little pieces of chicken fat skin it's actually kind of the jewish cognate of southern cracklins basically it's deep fried fat right
2: well i have i have to make a confession i grew up in midtown manhattan and i don't know what the deal was with my parents who were both jewish but we celebrated easter We celebrated Hanukkah, we celebrated Purim, we celebrated Christmas. I think anything when you could eat and there were (laughs) gifts, you know, that was fine. And one of the greatest ways of celebrating Christmas was my parents' apartment was right across the street from an Eastern Orthodox monastery. And the monks used to invite us over there at Christmas for borscht. Yeah. And borscht is a wonderful, you know, bright red, gorgeous holiday, Christmassy, Hanukkah-looking dish. So I, I think, you know, if there's food and presents and friends or family, who cares?
0: You write about Clifton Mill near Yellow Springs, Ohio.
3: Yes, Clifton Mill, I mean, if you want to really celebrate Christmas or view an unbelievable celebration of Christmas, Clifton Mill, which is a terrific restaurant serving kind of real country food, including even like cornmeal mush in the morning. But the main reason we would want to talk about Clifton Mill today is that it has the most incredible Christmas display you will ever see. The buildings there are covered with (laughs) 3.5 million lights illuminating this thing. And when they turn on these lights, the trees, the bridges, the gorge, the mill, they all just glow with just a kind of unbelievable, a a magical sense about it. There's a 100-foot waterfall, the entire thing illuminated with twinkling lights. Is it magical or is it kitsch or is it both?
0: Both. Both.
3: (laughs) Without a doubt, it's both.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jane and Michael Stern. They're uh, well-known for their classic book, Road Food, and uh, their website is roadfood.com. And I understand in your website you've got a lot of interactivity so people can share their tips and share notes and learn from other people's experience too?
3: Yeah, in several ways. If somebody wants to actually post a review of a restaurant that they like along with photographs, there's a whole method for doing that. Or if they want to be a little less formal about it, we've got different forums devoted to favorite subjects. There's a hamburger forum, a, uh, a seafood forum. There's a, a trips forum where people can post trip reports.
0: You know, I, I get the joy of talking to a lot of art historians and, and tour guides and so on, and I feel like I'm talking to passionate art historians here, but the, the art is, you know, comfort food and road food and, and uh, typical American food. Uh,
2: well, you know, we were art historians. Oh, really? We... I didn't know that. Yeah, when we met at Yale, we were studying. So you take that
0: passion for culture and you put it on on an edible kind of sightseeing for your tongue.
2: Cultural anthropology or or whatever.
0: Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Diane is calling in from Santa Fe. Hi, Diane. Hi. Hi, Diane. Got a comment or a question for Michael and Jane? I
4: do. You know, I listen to you guys on the uh, Splendid Table every week. I'm from Santa Fe, and I have heard you comment on a couple of times on different restaurants around our area. And of course, we're pretty unique at Christmas time. Santa Fe is really a great, special place this time of year. And I was wondering, uh, you know, if you had any memories of Santa Fe that, uh, you know, you might want to share. (laughs)
2: A few. No, I mean,
3: I think the point needs to be made, for those who are unaware of it, is that New Mexico is very proud of the fact that the food you get in New Mexico is not Mexican food. It's not Calmex. It's not Tex-Mex. It's New Mexican cuisine, which has dishes and a style all its own. And, in fact, on the subject of the holidays, as you know, I'm sure, Diane, you know, when you order, um, say, enchiladas there— They'll ask you if you want red or green chili on them. And the right answer to that question for me is, I want Christmas, which means you want red and green chili.
2: <laughs> That's right. Santa Fe is also the most beautiful place with all the luminarias out. It, it, it's, do you agree, I mean, that it just takes on a magical look about it at Christmas?
4: Well, it does. Christmas Eve, uh, Canyon Road, which is lined with art galleries, sure. is lined with luminarias so that people could walk down Canyon Road to the cathedral for Christmas services.
2: And also because the high altitude there, the stars sparkle in a way you just don't see anywhere else in the United States. It gives your
4: Christmas season
0: a a whole different kind of uh, carbonation, doesn't it?
4: It really does. This year we have a new restaurant in town, which is a Spanish tapas restaurant. I think you mentioned La Boca the last time you were here. Sure. And they've opened up a new little uh, Taberna La Boca. And it is really? becoming the hotspot in Santa Fe.
3: Well, you know, my first stop in Santa Fe always has to be Bobcat Bite for the great green chili cheeseburger on Earth.
4: It is. It's the best, isn't it?
3: It is the best.
0: Diane, thanks for your call. You're welcome. And enjoy your Christmas.
4: Thank you. You too.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jane and Michael Stern. We've been talking holiday road food. Their website is roadfood.com. When you think about fine gastronomy, you think about eating with the season. Is that wisdom of eating with the season, does that apply much to your line of, of work and eating, or is it sort of Absolutely.
3: A... Without a doubt. In your neck of the woods, Rick, I love Dungeness crab, and if I want to eat the best Dungeness crab, I'm not going to come to the Pacific Northwest in May. I want go. to be there in November. Right. And similarly, you know, if you want the world's best blueberry pie, you got to come to Maine in the summertime because that's uh, when the blueberries are absolutely fresh and they're those little, unbelievably tasty Maine blueberries. And in nice. Oregon,
2: the, the hazelnut harvests and the chili harvest in Hatch, New oh, Mexico. Oh my gosh! Yes. We're getting back to New Mexico. Yeah.
0: So in the winter, in the winter, what specialties do you look for and where?
2: Well, actually, that's in the fall, the mm-hmm. chili harvest.
3: And most restaurants that really pay attention to it will have great, freshly made chili. From fall through the winter. A lot of them will okay. start running out in the spring if they didn't stock up on enough chilies.
2: And now in Connecticut we're getting the first bushels of cranberries from the bogs in Massachusetts. I would imagine as you guys assess
0: the quality of places, you are paying attention to do they even care about seasonality? Because I would imagine a lot of places don't.
3: Well a lot of them don't. And I mean it it's not necessarily a bad thing, but mm-hmm. I mean You know, when you want a great peach pie, I mean, how much better is it if those peaches are absolutely fresh in Georgia?
2: Seasonality is obviously a a wonderful thing, but regionality is really what kind of road food is.
0: That's the distinction. That makes a lot of sense. The distinction.
2: So, you know, we would not be ordering clam chowder in Montana. (laughs) Um, So it's not just what is of the season and farm to table, which is terrific, Mm -hmm. but does it belong there? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't get abalone in Cincinnati, Ohio. So, you know, you really have to eat the right thing in the right place. And
0: that's exactly what you are offering to all of your readers and your your happy eaters. Just like you need a good guidebook to know where to see the Van Goghs and where to see the Michelangelo's you need to know what to eat and what part of our, our fascinating you, country. You need a
2: Rick Steves. Ah, well, we got <laughs> Jane really and Michael do.
0: Stern doing road Food again. The uh, website is roadfood.com, and uh, it's always fun to talk to you guys. Thanks so much, and happy holidays. Same to you, Same bro. to you, Rick. The Amazing Race has dominated the Emmy Awards for reality TV series for the last decade. Cameras chase teams of contestants around the world as they try to complete stunts and challenges until one surviving team makes it to the finish line first for a million-dollar prize. The host of The Amazing Race, Phil Kogan, joins us next as we help him celebrate wrapping up his 21st season of Dashing Around the Globe. Our number is 877-333-RICK. It's travel with Rick Steves. One of the most popular TV shows about travel these days is the reality show, The Amazing Race. Cameras follow two-person teams of contestants as they go on a crazy course of challenges all over the world, and the winning team takes home a million dollars. Along the way, these Americans are challenged by cultures far outside their comfort zone. Phil Kogan is a New Zealander, and he's the host, the master of ceremonies for this global race, and he joins us now to give us an inside look at The Amazing Race. Phil, thanks for joining us. Of course. Of course. Now, for the few people who haven't actually watched the show, Phil, give us a, just a very thumbnail description of, of what is the whole show about.
1: Well, the show's been on for now eleven years, and it is a show where we take teams of two, who can be grandparents, they could be father son, mother daughter, best friends. Uh, we've had separated couples that have tried to come back together, so it's a team of two with a pre-existing relationship. And these 11 teams of two start in the United States. They race from country to country, completing various challenges. The last team to get into each of the 12 legs that we have around the world is eliminated. We end up with three teams, three of the best teams, racing to a finish line in the United States. And the first team to cross the finish line wins this million-dollar prize. And
0: you've been the host from the start?
1: I have, and uh, I'm also a producer on the show, and, and I write the show. So I am involved in terms of organizing my own team out on the, the road. It's just myself, a cameraman, and a sound guy uh, on the road. We shoot all the introductions, and I gather all the information while I'm out there and rewrite scripts while we're out there, gather information for the interviews, which is uh, obviously so important. So
0: you got, like, 20 contestants out there running around in, in some cases. How, how big is the actual crew?
1: Well, in any given season, there can be upwards of two thousand people involved. If you were to add in all the security people and the people who do the transcribing and drivers and people who work as assistants for the art department, etc., people building things. How many camera? But people? in my, well, that that varies. There's a cameraman and a sound person with every team. There's a cameraman and a sound person with me, and then there are additional cameramen that we pick up in various countries freelance camera operators who then come in and help us shoot the challenges so it varies but there are you know at least a dozen hmm. cameramen shooting at any given time
0: are th- are these small cameras phil uh, so they can be more mobile and discreet or are they full television cameras
1: no they're full-on sony hmm. xd hd uh cameras uh-huh. with you know very heavy lens on uh, you know the camera package with the receivers is around 30 pounds these guys are uh Extremely fit and strong.
0: And they jump right into the taxi with the contestants and get them on the fly. Yes, they do. Now, do you, yes, they and do you have a boom mic actually hanging up there?
1: Uh, there's a camera mic, then there are radio mics, and the sound person is also then carrying a boom. So there are actually four sources of audio at any given time. So contestants have a mic buried on them with the radio transmitter? Always, yes. And even when they're in the water, we wrap the microphones up in, in condoms and waterproof the transmitters, and they're always wired.
0: Now, what are in the backpacks?
1: Um, some of them just bring way too much. Uh, some of them bring way too many pairs of underwear, and uh,
0: so that's entirely up to them. I notice some people have rolly bags, others have good backpacks for running, and but uh, it's entirely up to them.
1: Yeah, it's really up to them. I mean, there are certain things that they cannot bring. For instance, you know, we don't allow them to bring a, a computer and and a GPS system and things that will assist them in in moving through on the race. But as far as, as the uh, allowable items that they can bring, uh, it's totally up to them. How many jackets they bring, how many fleeces, shells, etc., that's totally up to them.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Phil Kogan, and he's the host and writes The Amazing Race. Phil, over the years, have you had to amp it up each year to keep the excitement going? How how has the show evolved from a writing point of view?
1: I think the, the thing that really works about our show is that it is always fresh, so If we've amped it up, it's really just because there've been more people who want to be on the show and they help us amp it up. Hmm. Ultimately, the entertainment value of a a given season is determined by the people that we put in front of the camera. We obviously look for the best possible challenges, but if you put really boring people into a great challenge, it's going to end up boring. At the end of the day, we have to make sure that we cast great people. We have an extraordinary team of people who have cast extremely well and... If you look at the different people that we have had on the show over the years, the diversity really, I think, is second to none. We're not a show about people who can sing well, dance well, who all are trying to lose weight, who are all good at designing. Or Quite frankly, they really have nothing in common at all. Mm -hmm. When you you take uh, Chippendales and you put them with monster truckers, a woman who is a, a double amputee and a phenomenal athlete, somebody who's deaf, somebody who has Asperger's, um, somebody who's got a beer belly, bung knees, uh, somebody's a coal miner. When you grab these, one of the great things about America is it has incredible diversity with its population. So as more and more people have found out about the show, more and more of these diverse people have applied to be on the show. And so it is inherently become more interesting because more interesting people are more interested in being on the show.
0: I agree. That's a very important dimension of it is the interesting people that you manage to get for contestants. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, Phil Cogan, and he's the host of The Amazing Race. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Denisa is on the line from Weatherford, Oklahoma. Denisa, thanks for your call.
5: Oh, thanks for taking my call. I'm a great fan of Amazing Race. I've tried several times to get on, but I guess I'm not interesting enough. But I have some questions because we love to watch the show and have questions about how things happen. One of the things is when you come to a pit stop, Sometimes there's an elimination round and sometimes it's not. Is that predetermined or do you, does who's coming in last have anything to do with how that happens?
1: Uh, I wish that I had the power to determine when it was an elimination and when it wasn't, quite frankly, because there have been some great teams that I've eliminated that I really would have loved to have told, uh, you know, that they were still in the race. And conversely, there's some other teams that I have definitely wanted to see go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wish I had that power. No, we, we have to predetermine it just because it is a competition. Um, we we have to adhere by the rules. We can't go chopping and changing them to suit ourselves and change the outcome of things in that manner. And, you know, we we just have to live with it.
5: I was also curious. I see you interact with the contestants like at the, the pit stop. And do you spend much time with the contestants other than that time?
1: That's really where I spend the most time. Um, A lot of people don't know that the show is shot in only 21 days. So there's 12 shows happening in 21 days, which is less than two days per show. In one season, we actually traveled 75,000 miles in that amount of time. So if you were to go around the equator once, it's around roughly 25,000 miles. So we were doing the equivalent of going around the world three times in 21 days shooting 12 shows and so there really is no time to stop and dilly-dally and have a pina colada by the pool so i do do extensive interviews with them at the mat a challenging part of that for me is gathering the information so that when they come in i'm informed and i know that you know a mile down the road before they got to the pit stop that they had a, a terrible cab ride and and i need to know exactly what happened so that's one of the most challenging parts of my job is just keeping up to date with what's going on in real time because I don't have a chance to go back and redo it. Uh, I either get it while it's happening out there or I miss it.
0: 12 shows in 21 days it I thought it looks frantic it actually is frantic when you're out there.
1: Well for us making the show it's a race to this day even though I've been doing the show for 11 years people ask me well what are you doing when the teams are you know running from place to place and I have to explain to them that I am racing. (laughs) <laughs> there are many times when I'm shooting the introduction to a challenge where the teams are coming and I'm rushing to try to get a stand up shot to introduce the right. challenge about leading the donkey along a path or whatever. And I've got to try to get shot and get out of there before the first team arrives and get to the next challenge slightly ahead of them. And then, of course, be at the mat before the first team. Mm-hmm. Then I have to wait for the last team. And then, as soon as the last team comes in, I've got to try to get ahead onto the next leg. So we never actually stop. It's just Mm -hmm. as soon as we're clear, boom, onto the next leg and try to get ahead.
0: Do you have lead people taking care of permissions and authorities, or or what kind of frustrations do you have? I would imagine you could get busted for having your tripods on the park, and somebody wonders, what's what's your authority here?
1: Yeah, well, every place that we go to, that we know we're going to go to, we uh, seek approval first. Mm -hmm. So if we know that we're going to be in a particular cathedral for a challenge, then we have sought all the permissions needed for that before we get there. So
0: that's pretty reliably smooth, then.
1: Yes. But, of course, we don't know that a team is, you know, they might go off the path, and they may end up in a high school somewhere.
0: And they've just got their camera tailing them wherever they go, right or wrong.
1: Correct. And sometimes you know sometimes people will say what are you doing here (laughs) so along the way that that can get challenging but for the most part the producers do a phenomenal job of course of predicting where they're going to go (laughs) and we have permits with us and you know if anybody stops us at any point in time we can show them that we have uh, set things up to be there
0: hey denisa in oklahoma thanks for your call
4: thank you so much
1: thank you
0: and we have rick on the line in toronto ontario rick thanks for your call
6: Well, thanks for taking my call. I'm a big fan of uh, both of your shows and have been for a while. Um, My question is about, you know, you you are out there filming in the open, out in the public. How much does the potential for being spoiled or spotted affect how and where you film?
1: Well, us being spotted really doesn't affect or spoil anything. The show has changed so much, or I should say the world has changed so much since the show started. I mean, cell phones the use of cell phones uh in the beginning was a crucial part of being able to shoot a show like this with communications but if you think about how things have changed in the last decade it's crazy i mean people can send a message from anywhere in the world now to say that they just saw an amazing race crew running through the airport in hong kong i i personally welcome the idea that people do see us and i think fans are protective of any particular story points you know not creating spoilers but the idea that somebody tweets or takes a shot of us running through an airport and sends it out to me uh, is a great thing. I, I think it speaks to the times, and I, I think it's sort of exciting. I don't think anybody is not going to watch the show if they find out that we were in Azerbaijan in a, uh, in a spar dipped in oil. I don't think that's going to turn people off. If anything, it's going to make people think, wow, I'd love to watch that when it comes on the show.
0: Rick, thanks for your call. Thank you. Take care. Phil, do you, do you help generate these ideas for challenges? And, and if so, what's your favorite challenge that you've come up with for the show?
1: I love the idea that we get people involved in indigenous challenges. Those are my favorite. I love that ordinary Americans are able to take part in challenges that ordinary people do every day to survive around the world. Those are absolutely my favorite, uh, whether it's fishing, uh, building something. We were in Bangladesh... Recently, and and the teams were able to experience what it's like to make mattresses on the top of a building where they have to beat the cotton and they use a special technique to fold it into cloth. And I think it's always about uncovering new and different things. Probably my favorite challenge ever was the simple act of trying to move big wheels of cheese from the top of a hill to the bottom of a hill. And the cheeses were on a very old, uh, rickety cheese carrier and the carrier broke and the cheese started rolling down the hill Mm -hmm. and was completely out of control and the locals thought we were crazy and the teams were slipping and sliding and these huge wheels of cheese were rolling down the hill. So I just love moments like that where we take things that people do in their everyday lives around the world and we make them a challenge for our traveling teams.
0: Where was that cheese contest?
1: Uh, That was in Switzerland.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, Phil Kogan, and he's the host of The Amazing Race. Phil, when you do this show, you're dealing with much more than travel. This is people and relationships and breaking points and frustration. How interesting is it for you, and and what sort of insights into human nature have you gained after doing this show for a decade?
1: Well, you know, for me, I have always been about encouraging people to push themselves to attempt to do things that they would never think about before. And The Amazing Race, to me, offers an extraordinary opportunity, not just for those people who are on the show, but also for the viewers. I tell people that very rarely do you see a show that celebrates the best of what the world has to offer in a primetime network show. Most of the time when you see the world, you see something wrong happening somebody's burning an American flag, there's a protest, there's a flood, there's a disaster. If it bleeds, it leads. That's normally where you see the rest of the world on TV. So people's perception of the world is tainted by the idea that when they see the world, I'm talking about in mass here and primetime shows, it's showing a world where something negative is happening. So the idea that everyday Americans, coal miners, people who have nothing, Republicans, Democrats, black, white, tall, short, conservatives, liberals, whatever they are, that they are able to go out into the world and see that really everybody is concerned about their children. There are good and bad people everywhere. There's kindness in the world outside the United States. I, I think it allows for some tolerance, and I think we've been able to share the world on shows that air on National Geographic or Discovery, but when you take something that is a primetime network show and you're able to share that with the masses, I think it really opens people's eyes up. And the people who are involved in this show, the teams that are on the show, people connect with those people because they are everyday people. They are people that, that the audience can really relate to. That's something that I'm very, very proud of. And then the idea that people attempt things that they just never would attempt in their everyday lives, I think further encourages not only them to live bigger lives, but also the audience to be inspired. I can think of season six, when Gus and Hera were on Gouray Island off the coast of Senegal. and And we had quite a powerful moment where we asked the teams to walk down a tunnel, which was the tunnel used by Africans who came to America during the slave trade era. And we asked them to take a moment to remember them and the show just slowed right down you know suddenly it wasn't a race it was a really poignant moment of remembering and a part of american history those moments to me really stick out
0: after producing over 200 shows phil can you finish this talk with just your favorite sort of personal triumph that you've seen from one of your contestants
1: over the years, I've seen people do extraordinary things. People have come onto this show really not knowing what they're really capable of. We have forced them in a safe way to perhaps push back against what they think is possible. Um, I think back to Charlotte and Myrna, for instance. Charlotte being a, a small person in Argentina, and one of the challenges was to, for her to carry a piece of meat, which quite frankly was about as big as she was. Um, She had so much determination, this young woman. She'd been measured by others because of her size all her life, and she just shocked everybody, surprised everybody, and I think surprised herself, beating out much stronger teams on paper. But her grit and determination, her mental toughness, is what really got her through that. And she was an interesting woman. She ended up coming back with her cousin on the All-Star season but it's moments like that that to me really epitomize what we're all capable of and that's more than we think. Phil
0: Kogan, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me here.
0: Next, we keep the lines open at 877-333-7425 to check in with a few of our listeners who found the holidays a great time to get away from home, and we'll get an insider's guide to how they celebrate Christmas in Prague. It's Travel with Rick Steves. You can enjoy the holidays at home or there's plenty of holiday cheer to be had overseas. That's our topic now. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Neil in Milwaukee, Wisconsin is calling in. Hey, Neil. How are you? Great. How are you doing?
7: I'm great. And you're right. It is a great opportunity to travel. We, After many years of spending the holidays here in the Midwest with family, convinced ourselves that we could be gone for uh, for Christmas and Year after year, had some great adventures in places like Zermatt and Paris and Vengen and even Las Vegas and a cruise. But the uh, European Christmas vacations were uh, some of our all-time favorites for the family.
0: What is one of your favorite memories?
7: One of them is, first of all, just spending all of the time with the family, uh, maybe sitting under a warm blanket on a balcony overlooking Vengen uh, as the snow falls and uh, having perhaps a, a glass of wine.
0: Neil let's let's explain what Wengen's all about paint a picture for us what what do you see from that balcony
7: Wengen is perhaps the perfect Swiss village car free up overlooking the uh, the Lauterbrunnen Valley a great place if you want to ski a great place if you want to sled but just the classic Swiss chalets, one after another with a dusting of snow a great opportunity to walk a short distance down into the village and uh, a short street of shops and uh, just an absolutely picture-perfect with the lights twinkling across the valley from some of the other chalets.
0: I love it. You're right under the Eiger, Mönch, and Jungfrau, that most incredible alpine panorama.
7: Absolutely. And, of course, one of the other things that is different that time of year is food is different. The food in many places is different in December than it is uh, on a July vacation. And so that raclette or fondue that you might have after a day of skiing is particularly perfect in cold weather. It's a great warm dish to huddle around and uh, have a conversation with your friends. So we've, we've done that uh... some of the bakers have a a great scheme where they set up a little table out in front of their bakery in the village at around four o'clock in the afternoon so as everyone is coming down from the ski hill they're making Berliners, the powdered sugar-dusted and jelly-filled donuts that are warm and uh, being made right there on the street. It is impossible to walk by uh, without having at least one on your way back to the chalet.
0: That sounds so nice. You know, that's so true in Switzerland, and the seasonal food is nice, and a lot of tourists are just hell-bent on having fondue or raclette in the summer, but it's just not quite right in the summer. In the winter, the melted cheese dishes really are appropriate. That's when the Swiss are enjoying them.
7: And then there are some things you had always heard about from your childhood, but I had never actually seen chestnuts roasting on an open fire until uh, walking through uh, Zermatt one night during the Christmas season, and uh, the street vendors were out with their uh, their chestnuts, which uh, smelled, of course, wonderful. Mm. So you, you learned the reality of what had been a childhood song or myth.
0: Yeah, and the, they have these... Logs that are sort of jammed into the ground, and they're split, and then they soak them with tar, and they're just like torches, big torches, and they'll stand around that with their hot mulled wine and their chestnuts, and it's it's that conviviality. They they come together around a fire, they come together around a, a, a bowl of uh, fondue cheese, and they just really connect during the holidays.
7: Absolutely. And these villages, the fact, I think, partially that they're car-free, whether it's Zermatt or wangen and the only thing gliding through the village on a layer of snow is um, perhaps a horse-drawn sleigh taking tourists from the train station to their hotel or their chalet or even uh, women pushing what would be wheeled strollers here in the states in the summer pushing uh, small buggies like that with runners over the snow. Oh, I didn't it know just, that. It's so they've perfect.
0: got they've got baby carriages that are on sled runners.
7: Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, and that's it's beautiful. Just, it it's gorgeous and you don't have, you know, some uh, carbon monoxide uh, headache by.
0: Have you been in Zermatt and Wengen in the holiday season? Yes. No, I've I've been in Vengen a lot, but I've never been in Zermatt in the winter. That, of course, is the touristy resort at the foot of the Matterhorn, whereas yes. Wengen is the uh, resort at the foot of the uh, the Jungfrau. Uh, yes. How would you compare the two mountain resorts in Switzerland?
7: Um, you're right. Uh, Zermatt is perhaps a little more touristy. I do remember uh, the kids window shopping, trying to decide whether the Eighty thousand euro or the hundred thousand euro watch was better, uh, and uh, and Vengen is is much more of a um, smaller family intimate, um, not a lot of you know shops aimed at tourists. It, it's just perhaps a more family feel for the yeah. uh, for the holidays.
0: Well, Neil, thank you so much for sharing, and I, I think the point you make—you don't need to stay home for the holidays. I've freed myself from that notion many years ago and I've had so many great memories enjoying the holidays with loved ones with family but far away
7: yes your friends and relatives will forgive you they may be envious but they will forgive you for being gone and you and your family will have memories for a lifetime
0: thanks for your call Neil and uh, uh, let's talk again uh, soon I hope thank you we're getting encouraged by our listeners right now on Travel with Rick Steves at 877 333 7425 to try the Christmas holidays away from home. You can post your own holiday travel ideas in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Garrett's on the phone in Chicago. Hi, Garrett.
6: Oh, hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call.
0: You bet. What are your thoughts about Christmas time in Europe?
6: Uh Well, three years ago, I was fortunate enough to spend Christmas in Venice, and, you know, Venice is such a magical place anyway, but, I mean, Christmas time, it was really, truly enchanting, um, and I think it's a good time to see Venice or as a village, you know, as a community, because instead of seeing hordes of tourists or day trippers coming in from cruise ships just overwhelming the place, we actually saw locals just you know, just doing their usual holiday stuff, just hurrying about, shopping for gifts, and getting ready for Christmas. So, it was quite a neat experience, and there were no crowds at all, so it was very easy to get around, and all the attractions were still open, except for Christmas Day, obviously, and the 26th, which is also a holiday in Italy.
0: So, you yeah. you were actually there on Christmas?
6: Yeah, yeah, and one of our fear was we were afraid that nothing would be open, but actually, everything was open, and all the churches, all the museums were open except for the 24th and the and the 25th and definitely the 26th
0: they because were still closed. I've been in St Mark's Basilica so many times and it's so lavish and glittering with gold and all that Romanesque and Byzantine sort of aura to it and I've thought what a beautiful place that would be on a Christmas Eve mass.
6: Oh my god, that's actually one of the memories that I will treasure for the rest of my life I think was being there for a Christmas Eve mass. We went there, we took the vaporetto, we huddled with all of these other Italians, all ages, and there were even some clergy people in in the boat, and then we got there and the place was just a glow with the golden light from the mosaics, you know,
2: because Whoa. they
6: had it all lit up and then you have the incense and the priests saying Mass in Italian and it, it was it was packed and it was packed with locals and we were just sitting there thinking, My God, you know, we're we're doing something that's been going on for like a thousand years, you know.
0: Yeah. Now Venice it, is it was
6: quite overwhelming.
0: You know, Venice sometimes you, you get the sense that Venice is just a small town. And it sounds like I would imagine there it would feel like the whole town was gathered together in one big medieval church.
6: Yeah, it was it was truly spectacular. And that year they had unusually a lot of snow in northern Italy and they also had Aqua Alta, so
0: so the city after the city that, was flooded. Aqua Alta is when they get a certain barometric pressure and a high tide and everything coinciding, and a wind, and, and, the, and the city floods, and St. Mark's is the lowest part of the city, so it floods first, the big square there. Did the water actually go into the church?
6: Almost, but on the way back to the hotel after Mass, we had to wade through, like, maybe a foot of um, Aqua Alta, and there was flooding, like, the day after we were there too so we had to wade through the uh, cold waters of the Adriatic but you know huh. I mean hey it was it was cold it was damp but it was it was a great experience
0: so you'd recommend Christmas in Venice then?
6: absolutely no crowds and it's probably the most memorable Christmas I've ever spent
0: <laughs> great thanks Garrett for the tip
6: well, thank you very much Rick okay bye now bye bye
0: Melinda's on the phone in Norfolk, Virginia Melinda thanks for your call
5: Hey, thanks for taking my call.
0: You bet. Tell us about a Christmas time you've had in Europe.
5: Well, it was quite a surprise. We were actually just going through but decided to stop in Nuremberg for the day. And there's a wonderful Christmas market there. That was a complete surprise to me. I didn't realize they had one of the largest ones in Europe. Oh, that's
0: the famous one. I think that's the biggest and the best in Germany, they say.
5: Yeah, it was it really was magical. I mean, all the lights were beautiful and, and we were there early in the day. Then went to some museums, and then we came back in the evening. And during the day, it had this carnival feel. All the kids were out. There were little rides for them. And then we came back in the evening, and everything was lit up. It was just breathtaking. And you know, the uh, you gotta have some gingerbread and.
0: Some the gingerbread is or- a long-standing tradition in Nuremberg, isn't it? They're very proud of that.
5: It is, and come in all different types of shapes and sizes, and they're really good, and you can get them packaged up to take with you.
0: It's a classy market. It's filling the square there in front of the church. It's the best Christmas market I've ever seen, and uh, I thought it was very um, elegant. I, they must have some regulations, because I know that the knickknacks have to be, they all have all these little carved goodies for your Christmas tree and so on, but they, they don't like it imported from China or something like that. They, they like locally made uh, handicrafts.
5: Right, they have some beautiful woodwork and crafts and handmade ornaments. They were really lovely, great idea to take home to people.
0: What do you remember as far as uh, eating and drinking during those festive times at the market in Nuremberg during Christmas?
5: Different bread products that, you know, you can pick up, the gingerbread, the warmed wine, of course, lots of roasting chestnuts and nuts. So Mm. we just kind of snacked our way through.
0: You know, one of my favorite snacks, uh, Melinda, is the little tiny sausages. They're about the size of your little finger. They're called the Nuremberg sausages, and you get three of them with beautiful mustard on a little tiny bun. And it's just a delightful snack when you're roaming through the Christmas market in Nuremberg. Did you try any of those Nuremberger sausages? Yes,
5: they're delicious. And my husband loves the mustard just as much as the sausage. Mm. So.
0: And then I noticed it was kind of classy. They didn't have any disposable glasses. Everybody was drinking their hot mulled wine. But you give a, a little deposit and they give you a ceramic cup and you have to bring it back to get your deposit back.
5: Correct, yeah. It was just very neat. I mean, one of the best. I've, I've been to uh, you know, a couple other markets, like in Austria, but this one just really had that Christmas feel, really you know magical feel to it. It was a really great day, and it's just beautiful in southern Germany at Christmas time.
0: What are you going to do for your next Christmas in Europe? Where would you like to go?
5: Um, we have some family um, in from Poland, so probably Krakow. Uh,
0: that would be beautiful. Krakow would be as magical as Nuremberg easily.
5: Oh yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what it's like and comparing it. We we have had Christmas in Paris before, but it was kind of disappointing compared to after being in Nuremberg. It d- didn't
3: compare.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the, our our image of Christmas is, you know, the Christmas markets and the vine and all of that beautiful little uh, carvings and wonderful German handicrafts hanging from the tree and so on. Melinda, thanks for your call and uh, Merry Christmas. All
5: right, Merry Christmas. No.
0: Prague is a magical city any time of year. And on Christmas Eve, it sparkles with traditions that the communist years of Czechoslovakia couldn't erase. Katarina Svoboda tells us how she keeps the traditions of the season in her hometown. Katarina, thanks for joining us.
8: Thank you for inviting.
0: What happens in Prague on Christmas?
8: Well, first of all, the whole city is changing because of the lights going on, and hopefully, if we have snow, also some... Ice skating rinks around are set up in the city center. What is quite amazing that you can be kind of skating and looking around the architecture, <laughs> and then the markets. Oh, we just love those Christmas markets. Uh huh.
0: So, what would you find in a Christmas market?
8: Well, you can buy. You know, we are quite famous for producing the glass ornaments, oh, yeah. either to the Christmas tree or just you know to decorate your house. So these are the ones where you can get them. And then, of course, it's more about the food and drink too. What you can get in the markets
0: now in the Czech Republic is there a Santa Claus figure?
8: Well, we are not very much into that. We have our own. Watch. What do you have? We call him Ježíšek.
0: Ježíšek.
8: It's little baby Jesus, if okay. translated. Sort of
0: like the Christkind in Germany. Uh huh. Does the little baby Jesus uh, give gifts?
8: Yeah, the That's little right. baby Jesus, every kid is expecting him to come. The little baby
0: th- Jesus will come to your house and give gifts? Yeah. Normal, is it actually a little boy? Or?
8: It's actually a very difficult to describe.
0: It's like an angel or something?
8: Yeah. A lot of people think that, yeah, he looks like an angel. A lot of people have that impression. It's the baby Jesus like you can find in the nativity scenes. You yeah. Know? Like that real. So but there's sort of
0: just a gift-giving spirit of Christmas that yeah. comes. And in
8: no one company. ever seen him, of
0: course. That's the okay. point. <laughs> but do the, the children actually anticipate gifts? And will that be in the morning, on Christmas morning?
8: Uh, no, we actually celebrate it on the December 24th in So the when does evening. the baby Jesus
0: come then? In the evening. He comes and nobody sees him?
8: Yeah, that's always that you have the window open, so you just let him go in while you are eating your Christmas dinner. In the other room, he's bringing the presents at the same time, and once you finish the Christmas dinner, then you go to the next room.
0: So as a little girl, how could you concentrate on the food?
8: Oh, that was hard. Oh, my God. And then also I remember, because we like to eat the carp, fish, it's very bony, and I had to wait until everyone finished his... His uh played what was really very difficult, but I managed
0: you mean it was hard for you to figure out how to eat the carp you yeah, were so, because with you were so just, many bones discombobulated, because yeah, yeah. baby Jesus is coming through the window sure, you I got all these to, presents waiting for you. I wanted
8: to be next door already uh, getting my presents, but yeah, we still keep this tradition.
0: What are your best memories as a little child of Christmas in the Czech Republic? This in, was actually in communist in times, communist
8: then. times exactly. It's actually interesting that we kept this kind of uh, secret and spirit, and so even during the times, you know, what was very... Because the communist government un- yeah. tried to stop this, I would imagine. That's, that's right, but still it just, you know, was the, the magic of Christmas.
0: So the magic of Christmas survived the communist dark age. Yeah, really. and
8: of course it's more like a family gathering uh, right. event also, very important.
0: So in the Czech Republic, what was the best holiday food or or dessert or drink that you remember?
8: For the Christmas period? Yeah, uh-huh. I would say that one of the greatest parts of this is that we love to bake the little cookies. Oh, yeah. And we have so many different kinds. You know, it's very common that you go family by family and they have like 12 or 15 or even 20 different kinds of these little tiny cookies. And it's everyone's, like, family's recipe. And then we, of course, like, compare, you know, what is better in this family or that family. And it still goes on. And we just, yeah, we just love this. So this is, like, only what you get during Christmas time. You just don't get these, like, vanilkovy rohlíček that's, like, a little vanilla roll. Uh But it's actually small, like, half of your palm or even that. And so these are just for Christmas available. And then even for me to have a potato salad any other time than Christmas time it's strange because it's so much tied. Also the smells, you know, this, how whatever like either the baking, the cookies or then frying the fish and that, that's so much tied to the Christmas time. So whenever, if I am offered this some other time in a year, it's like, this is kind of strange. I can't eat it. You can't it's eat this potato salad no, in it's my, not Christmas. Yeah, just at that time. Do you have children? Yes, I do. How old are your children? I have two boys. One is four years old and the other one will be two.
0: Wow, perfect time for mm-hmm. the Christmas uh, mystery. Yes, that's and, right. And what kind of childhood memories are you giving your children? I mean, do you celebrate Christmas the same way your parents celebrated we, when you were yeah, little? Yeah,
8: yeah, we do actually. We try to keep, just the only thing is we don't eat carp, but we eat other fish. <laughs> but otherwise do you leave we, the window open? Yes, yes we do. Of course in our apartment where we live it's a little more difficult because we have the kitchen together in a room where we have the Christmas tree so it is kind of tricky to put the presents there in <laughs> in between the you know in between uh, the dinner but still we yeah we managed.
0: <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun in the Czech Republic during Christmas time. Oh yeah. And how do you say merry christmas in Czech?
8: Veselé Vánoce.
0: Veselé Vánoce.
8: Mhm. Thank you very much. Naskládano.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to Julie Ferdino at WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut, and to our colleagues at NPR West for production help today. Our technical team includes Andrew Wakeling, Chris Luzik, and Kate Mulhern and Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, and join us again next week as we explore more holiday traditions from Spain and Portugal to Belgium and Bulgaria, on Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves
0: Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.